Good morning, Risen. The scripture reading for our sermon this morning comes from Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thanks, Michelle, for reading uh, our scripture text for us today. Uh, it's good to see all of you. If this is your first time visiting us, I want to welcome you to our church. As, as Pastor Harry mentioned, there's just lots of ways to get connected, and that's what you know, church is. It's not just a Sunday service, right? It's life with each other. And so I'm Pastor Rich, just one of the pastors here, and as you can tell, we're going through the Gospel of Luke, and for the past several weeks, uh, we've been learning about life in the kingdom of God. Uh, surprise, right? Not really. But, you know, there's never a moment where actually Jesus is not talking about the kingdom of God. And so that's what we're going to do today again. We're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to talk about the kingdom of God. And uh, let me just start off by saying this. Uh, you know, Jesus' teachings has a lot of hard sayings, right? Uh, Michelle just read, if, if someone cannot renounce all that they have, they can't follow me. Uh, that's a hard saying. Um, the, the bar of entrance is set really, really high. They're hard uh, partially because, you know, sometimes they're hard to understand. What does that mean? Hate your mother, father, brother, sisters, even kids, right? Um, but they're also hard because they're hard to swallow. They're hard to accept. Uh, they're hard to receive. So using a word play here, Jesus' hard sayings, uh, friends, they're kind of like hard candy. What do I mean by that? Well, what do you do with hard candy? You can't just impulsively and impatiently bite down on it, right? That's going to get you to the dentist's office. Uh, it's going to take some time. You're going to have to go at it slowly to get to the center of it. And so the hard sayings of Jesus are like that. Because on the surface, they may look difficult. They may look absurd. And it's tempting to just bite down on it and to dispute it or disregard it or dismiss it or to interpret it very, very plainly, right? Some of us, we don't maybe like our parents. We're like, that, that one's easy. Yeah, man, I already don't like my parents. I love Jesus more than them, you know? That's not what Jesus is saying. Um, and so you got to process it and reflect it 
to get to the center of the saying or else it's not going to work. And so uh, today we're going to, that's what we're going to do, right? We're going to sort of take 30, 35 minutes just processing this hard saying. And the three things we're going to learn about, about the, the verses that, that we saw today is first, we're going to take a look at what it means to love in the kingdom. Uh, second, we're going to take a look at dis- discipleship in the kingdom. And then third, we're going to take a look at the cross in the kingdom. So those are our three points. In verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, they cannot be my disciple. What are you talking about, Jesus? Uh, now, I will admit, over this week, um, I tasted a new layer of this hard saying and uh, was able to kind of get to this little bit closer to the center of this truth. What is Jesus saying? Well, first, Jesus is comparing himself to our most intimate relationships, you know? Relationships with our parents. Relationships uh, with our spouse, our children, our siblings. These are uh, relationships that emotionally bring us the highest highs and the lowest lows. That's, That's how our intimate relationships work, you see? You can't just have the highest highs, and you can't disregard the lowest lows. No, the the intimacy of those relationships assume highest highs, lowest lows. These are relationships where we spend the most time and the energy, uh, commitment and sacrifice. They're the ones that draw out the most deepest emotions. So Jesus takes our most intimate and loving relationships, and he wants to talk about it because no one teaches about love as much and as well as Jesus does, and no one demonstrates love as well as Jesus does. So the first point, what is Jesus saying by comparing himself to these most intimate relationships? This is what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to love me. Love me. It's remarkable. He's taking every kind of of human love, and he's saying, And there's passion there, there's devotion there. You wouldn't know what you would do if you lost that. I want that kind of love. That's how I feel about you. And that's the kind of gut-wrenching, committed, sacrificial love I want from you. I want that with us. You see, friends, to be in a relationship with Jesus, you really have to have that kind of emotional love. A Christian is not someone who is just emotional about Jesus, about the faith. A Christian is someone who is emotional with Jesus. That's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. It's deeply emotional, deeply relational, and personal. You know, Christianity is not just uh, a worldview. It's it's not just about lifestyle and ethics. It's not just about... um, true reality and spiritual uh, wellness and positions and stances. No, Christianity essentially, fundamentally, is a personal and emotional relationship with Jesus Christ. What Jesus is saying, friends, is I don't just want duty. I want your love. I don't just want you to put me first. I want your emotions. 
So when you think about Jesus, Jesus is saying, do, do I make you smile? Do I bring peace in your heart? Do I give you meaning in the morning? So that's, what, that's the first thing that Jesus is saying. He's saying, I want, you to, I want you to love me emotionally. Now, second, we briefly mentioned this last Sunday. We talked about how this saying is not to be taken literally. It's a hyperbole. Jesus uses hyperboles all the time. What's a hyperbole? It's an exaggeration intended to make a point and not to be taken literally. When someone calls you a rock star, right, they're not saying you should quit your day job and become a rock star, you know. They're saying, I love you, man. <laughs> you're awesome. I appreciate you. Uh, you're a solid dude, <laughs> you know. So Jesus is not saying you should not love your father and mother or, you know, your spouse. Jesus is not saying don't honor your parents. He's not contradicting Ephesians 5 uh, where Paul says, husband, love your wives. He's not saying... Love your, uh, he's not saying hate your spouses. Jesus is using a hyperbole to make a point. What's that point? Jesus is talking about priorities. He's taking every kind of human relationship, the, the most uh, prioritized ones in our life, right? Uh, man, whenever my mom calls me, I call her right back, you know? Uh, it doesn't matter, you know, because it could be anything. Uh, when Jen texts me, I, I don't know why. I just have to feel like I have to respond or else the texts just keep coming, right? So I got to respond. <laughs> and Jesus is talking about priority. He's saying, I'm greater. You know, I'm more essential. I'm more fundamental. Jesus is saying, look, all the other relationships, they're like the stars that are out during the day. Uh, they're there, but you can't see them. Why? Because there is a greater, brighter love, the sun. So Jesus is saying, I don't want you to put out the other kinds of love, the, the other kinds of stars. Jesus is just saying, I'm the sun, and I want to flood your life with my love. And friends, if you think about it, and, and the Bible says this too, and Jesus is not really making the point here, but in other places in Scripture, actually the only way to properly love all the different kinds of relationships in your life is actually to love Jesus first. What do I mean by that? Well, the greater our love for Jesus, the greater we'll be able to love our family because God is love. God is the power source of love. He's the archetype, the gold standard of love. But if we were to be honest, and, and, and I'm not going to stand up here like I've got it all together. If I'm to be honest, you know, probably the case is that our lives reveal that instead of loving God and hating ourselves, uh, we probably hate God and love ourselves. And friends, this is uh, the source that causes all sorts of problems for us. Um, Augustine, in his book, Confessions, um, he says the essence, and, and you know, you understand, he's writing um, against his sort of Aristotelian contemporaries, right? And, you know, uh, Aristotelian philosophy says that everything you need to know in life, you get it from within, and you get it from others. That's how it is. But Augustine says the essence, the key to a beautiful life, the key to great relationships, a healthy, balanced self, uh, is not finding it within yourself or from others. Augustine says it's not working harder. It's not brain power. You can't attain this within yourself. You know, that's very American, isn't it? Uh, find the answer from within. Be self-sufficient. Find love and joy and happiness from within, right? You could buy it all. Make it happen yourself. 
But Augustine says that it's not from within or primarily from others where you find the key to contentment. He says the essence of contentment, which is the right ordering of our loves and lives, this only comes from the power of God. He says it's a spiritual reordering in our hearts. It's a supernatural rebalancing of our lives that brings contentment to us. And what Jesus is saying in this uh, sort of example here, he's saying, look, if you put me first, everything's going to fall in place. That's what he says. Right? You're going to experience peace. You're going to have healthy relationships. You're going to be more objective. You see, Jesus is saying, only when you love me and you worship me as God and, and you obey me and trust me above everything do your relationships and your expectations of others, your demands of others, your interactions and your emotions, only then are they going to fall sort of properly in place under the wisdom of God, under the spirit of God, under the contentment of Christ and his love and his ah, security for you. Right? This is what will ground us and, and really make our lives and our relationships more richer and fuller. So that's the first thing that Jesus wants to communicate to us in this passage is, is what love looks like in the kingdom of God. Now let's take a look at the second thing, discipleship in the kingdom of God. This is the go-to passage uh, for discipleship. I remember when I went on short-term missions and I went on a year-long mission to Southeast Asia, man, this was the verse, right? This was the verse. Um, after Jesus talks about relationships and love in the kingdom of God, he goes on here and he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, I love this passage. Well, the one thing I love about this, as I learned uh, this week, was that Jesus does not do bait and switches. Do you know what a bait and switch is? Well, let me give an illustration. One of the things that I hate about traveling, which prevents me from traveling, is um, when it, you never know what you're going to expect. Right? You don't know if these photos are real. <laughs> you don't know if these, what, like, where are all the fees, you know? I'm like, did I book the right nights, the right days? Well, you know, when you book a room, what do, you know what you, I don't know if you guys pay attention to this, but I, I, you read this little phrase. It says, this does not include any additional fees that will be charged. I don't know. What, what, I thought it was like $2.99, $3.99, something like that. But, but what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what that means, because when you check out, you're going to see an extra sort of $25, $50 tacked onto your bill. I don't know why, but those are the additional fees that I apparently agreed to, to, to pay. And they're not upfront about it. They never tell you the amount. You only find out after you check out. You don't even find out. I mean, I guess you could go up there and ask them, but um, that's when they put it on your bill. And the fee is always different. And I figured out why. I did a bunch of research, okay? Because, because they want you to book their room. So they need to see where they, they, they match in regard to all the sources that you're looking at. And so that front-end price that they list, if it's lower, then that back-end fee is higher, you see? So you can't even really evaluate which room is a better deal. Um, that's the fine print. They don't tell you the real cost of the room. That's the bait and switch. Now, I love the fact that Jesus doesn't do that, you know? He doesn't say, hey, come follow me. Uh, man, you're going to get eternal life. You're going to get forgiveness and the power of supernatural grace. Uh, you're going to experience spiritual power 
And then, you know, he doesn't say, oh, by the way, uh, did I tell you the additional fees and fine print? Um, you're going to have to pursue radical selflessness, right? You're going to have to die to yourself and live for others. Love others. Consider the poor. Yeah, and I, I'm going to tell you this every Sunday, by the way, right? He doesn't say, you, also, you may be persecuted for your views, and for some, even now, fatally as martyrs for the faith. That's a bait and switch, but Jesus doesn't do that. He's upfront about every single cost of following him. He doesn't, you know, he says, I'm not going to hide the difficulties and the challenges of following me. And uh, Pastor Tim Keller, he makes a great point on this passage. And um, he says it better than, than I could say it, so I just have it for us here on the screen. And I'm just going to read this quote uh, of his. This is what he says. Jesus doesn't make two categories of Christians. But almost everybody thinks there are two levels of being a Christian. There is the regular Christian level, regular Christians who believe. They don't get really excited about it, but they come to church, they believe it, and they pray when there's trouble. Then there are the devoted types. There are the people who, who are uh, kind of all out. And, you know, when I read this, I was like, man, I didn't know that what, what Jesus was saying, but I think, I think he nails it because our text says that in verse 25, in Luke chapter 14, verse 25, it says, now great crowds were accompanying Jesus, and then Jesus turns around and he speaks to them. Right? Jesus is not saying this to the 12 disciples. He's not saying this to those who are already committed to him. Right? There'd be no point in that. That's preaching to the choir. Jesus is saying this to those who are thinking about following him. Jesus is saying this to those who are checking him out, who maybe follow him when they feel like it, when it works around their life, and not the other way around. Because, you know, the word disciple in Greek it means follower. That's what it means. And to be a Christian, friends, is to be a disciple. There's no separation. Like, it's synonymous. And so what Jesus is saying is, is there are not two categories of being Christian. In other words, there's no double standards, you know? Like when I'm preaching this sermon, I'm not just talking to the ministry leaders or to those who have been in the faith for years and years. No, I'm, I'm, I'm even talking to the person who's coming to church for the very first time. Jesus is saying there's only one standard. Full, complete, sacrificial discipleship is the only one or the only way we can relate with each other. That's what he's saying. It's not optional, you know? But I, I love the fact that Jesus is being brutally honest. He's being brutally honest. You know, he's not, mar he's not a marketing ploy, you know? Um, he gives it to you straight. He doesn't beat around the bush because that's the worst. So, friends, we have to make no doubt about it. The cost of being a Christian, the bar is, is set high. And it seems unconscionable unreasonable it seems unrealistic it seems uh insensitive um, it doesn't seem like jesus is reading the room or maybe it is just supernaturally miraculous that this man jesus christ with this very clear honest and brutal message 
that he would resonate with and gather billions to him. Now, Jesus elaborates on this a little more, uh, the cost of following him, by giving two illustrations, right? He talks about um, a builder who wants to build something, doesn't count how much it will cost, and is unable to finish that, you know? Um, that's very realistic. As a civil engineer, I can't tell you how many times projects got delayed, canceled, um, sold off to another builder, right? Um, then he talks about a king who wants to go to war and then finds out he doesn't have enough troops, what is Jesus saying with these two illustrations? What Jesus is saying is, if you want to follow me, make sure you're good to the end. That's what he's saying. Daryl Bach, um, he's a Bible scholar. He pretty much wrote the gold standard on Luke, and he, he gives this analogy that communicates that truth. He says this, Maybe a more relevant illustration would be like a person who is all about dating, engagement, and the wedding, but not about the marriage. It is like a man who enjoys the dating phase, the excitement of the engagement, the celebration of the wedding, but is unwilling to endure and work through the challenges of marriage. Getting engaged and married is easy. 50 years is hard. Making babies is fun. Raising them is work. Getting saved is easy. Being sanctified is hard. And that's life. That's the way it is. And Jesus isn't going to lie to any of us and say, come to me and it'll be easy. So the first thing we see here in our passage is that discipleship is, one, not optional for a Christian. And two, it's going to be costly. You know, you know, when you go into a, you know, a marriage, hopefully you kind of, you understand what it's going to take and you're, you're not thinking, We've never fought, and I don't think we're ever going to fight, and we're different from every single person in this room, so I think we're good. Like, you don't want to go into marriage like that, right? You want to do your research. And so friends, have, have, have you truly sat down and examined what Jesus is asking from you? This may look different for everyone, because everyone struggles with different things, right? Some of us, we love and we worship comfort to the detriment of loving Jesus. Others of us, man, we love and worship success and productivity to the detriment of loving Jesus. You know, we don't want to just lounge around on Saturday. We just want to keep working and keep being productive. Some of us, we love and worship control to the detriment of loving Jesus. We're constantly trying to control people. And Jesus is saying, show some grace. Some of us love and worship pride to the detriment of loving Jesus. It's hard for us to be humble. It's hard, to not it's hard for us to never, um, you know, not have the last say, you know? But friends, in no unclear terms, what Jesus is saying is, look, you can't serve yourself and me. That's what he's saying. You can't serve two masters. You've got to, you've got to pick your captain. You've got to determine your life. You've got to select your fate. Essentially, this passage, you know what this is? It's the DTR. You know what the DTR is? It's, the defining the relationship conversation, okay? That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, what are we, you know? It's been years, man. You know, how long is this going to go? There's no middle ground. You can't just date Jesus forever and be indefinitely unsure of the commitment. You have, either have to have all of him or none of him. That's what Jesus is saying. But 
When you count the cost, friends, along with it, you can also count the value of what Jesus is giving to you in return. And this brings us to the last point. Let's talk about the cross in the kingdom. We have to take some time to understand what this word cross means in verse 27, right? It's probably pretty important that we understand what the cross means. It's a, it's a very significant word in the Bible, in the faith. Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Um, what is Jesus saying? What does it mean to take up your cross? Well, in Jesus' day, the cross was an instrument of execution. That's what it was. It was Rome's electric chair. That's how they executed criminals back then. It's not something you really want to hear before you go to eat lunch, right? Super Bowl Sunday, that's a downer, right? Um, the Bible can be TMI sometimes, and being a pastor can be really awkward sometimes. But if you know the story of Jesus, you know that, that, that the Roman government, government, along with the Jewish religious leaders and the Pharisees, they executed Jesus as a criminal. They were so tired and annoyed of Jesus, his teaching, and his followers that they put false charges of insurrection on him. Right? Jesus said he was the king of the universe. And so they used that to paint a narrative that Jesus was going to dethrone Caesar, even though that was not what he meant. And so friends, in our passage, Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship with some of the most strongest and starkest language that he uses at any point during his ministry on earth. Right? He wants to be absolutely and brutally honest with us what it means to be his disciple. If you are a Christian, you follow a God who was hated for his views. You follow a God who was brutally executed innocently by those who disagreed with him and hated him. And, and I know that it's kind of been a cultural euphemism in the church to say, uh, you know, oh, like, my car broke down and, you know, I got to carry my cross, so, you know, I got I to gotta Uber to work now, right? Like, that's not what Jesus is talking about, right? Carrying your cross is not an inconvenience, you know? Oh, man, I got to serve in children's ministry today. I got to carry my cross today. No, that's not, that's not what it means. Like, let's not, you know, water down what Jesus means to carry the cross as a Christian, you know? Picking up your cross is not an inconvenience. It's a cosmic and costly sacrifice and demonstration of divine grace. That's what it means. And make no, mista make no mistake about it. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you must be willing to do this too. You must be willing to partake of cosmic and costly sacrifice and demonstration of divine grace. But here's the twist, right? Uh, the Roman government thinks they're killing Jesus and they're done with him. They don't have to deal with him anymore. But in the Gospel of John, when Pilate, the Roman governor, is talking to Jesus, he says this, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all 
unless it had been given you from above. And then later in Luke's gospel, after Jesus is resurrected, he said to his disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And so the real reason for Jesus' death is not that he's innocently dying for committing sins against Caesar. No, the, the real reason, the divine purpose why Jesus dies, he's dying innocently for the sins that the world has committed against God. That's what he's saying. And so then, friends, if you and when you believe and trust in Jesus, it means God looks at you right now as if you've paid all the penalty for every cent of sin in your life. That's the gospel. In other words, if you uh, are a person who believes in Jesus and you start to beat yourself up because of your sin, because you feel guilty, you don't have to. Why? Because as far as God is concerned, you've already been beaten. You've already been flogged. You've already been crowned with thorns. You've been speared. You've been nailed. You've been judged already. Justice has already been paid. You see, everything that Jesus endured, you get. And everything that you endure, Jesus gets. And this is how much through faith, by grace, we are united to Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. And so, as a minister of the gospel, I'm reminding you today that you are forgiven. That you are loved that you are considered, you're accepted by the one who truly matters. And we remind ourselves of what Jesus did in order to get this done. Because friends, know this, the Savior who calls us to love him is the very Savior who counted the cost of his love for you. Jesus knew the price he would have to pay. You know, he's, he's in Gethsemane. He's sweating drops of blood. He, he knows what he's going to have to endure. He knows that he's going to be betrayed, but he goes to the cross nevertheless. And he doesn't give up. He doesn't give in. He dies. He forgives. He saves. He resurrects. And he is fighting for you and praying for you even right now. And friends, that is the first thing that you have to understand when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. It means that every day you wake up and you walk in the shadow of this cross for you. In gratitude and in forgiveness and grace, the power of God's love for you. That's what we're talking about. Let me just end with this. Uh, this is self-explanatory. Uh, but worth emphasizing, right? Jesus shed his blood. He died for all those who would believe in him. In other words, Jesus died to accomplish something. His life mattered to an infinite degree. And I know that's something we want, right? We want to live lives that matter. And I want your life to for something bigger than yourself, 
for something longer than this short time here, Father. Towards a name greater than your own, towards a glory greater than your family's. Towards salvation and the healing of souls. An eternal destiny, grace-based, cross-centered relationships. Towards a spiritual character, a spiritual impact with those around you and in the community that you live. That's your real purpose here on earth. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple and follow me, you've got to endure a measure of what I endured. And as we have learned, discipleship is really a series of cross-bearing self-deaths. It's a, it's a dying to self. You know, when I, when I was getting married and I was being mentored by my pastor, he said, Rich, um, marriage is dying to yourself and loving the other. It's not about your happiness. It's about the happiness of the other. That's what marriage is. Is this easy? Of course not. But friends, everything that matters is hard. Everything that matters is costly. Everything that matters requires sacrifice. You know, some of us continually look for the path of least resistance, don't we? It's hard. I need to find another way. If it gets hard, it must not be God's will. <laughs> you know? If it costs us something, then quitting is acceptable. You can always renege on your contract, lawyer up, do what you got to do. But a disciple is one who believes in Jesus, loves Jesus, worships Jesus, serves Jesus, follows Jesus, obeys Jesus, hard stop, full send. No fine printing. And what this means is that on one hand, we're living a life out of sacrificial service to Jesus, but it also means that we're doing it out of the fullness of what he has already done for us. And so our cup is full, and it's just overflowing. And Paul calls this life the good fight. That's what he says. I have a friend, um, close friend from Soka. Every time we hang up, we say, fight, keep fighting the good fight. Right? It's not easy, but you're fighting the good fight. It's not a meaningless fight. So don't quit. Get back in the fight. Make your life matter. Make your life count. Because Jesus has already made it count. And he is worthy. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come before you and, you know, when we all sort of stand underneath this text, we all realize just how uh, much we fall short of it. And how much we want to love ourselves more than you. And we find ourselves in all kinds of trouble. Struggling with discontentment, control, anxiety, fear, loss of sleep, stress now. Our hearts and our loves and our lives and our relationships are all disorganized. So we know that the first thing in carrying our cross is to understand that you forgive us and that you love us. 
not because we have it all together, but simply because we're part of your family. And just like any family member loves their family member unconditionally, that's what you do for us. And we thank you so much that you counted the cost. You did not just come here on earth and quit on us at Calvary. No, you went all the way to the end on that cross as you were scorned and condemned and crucified. We thank you that your love for us is displayed through unimaginable sacrifice. And I just pray for every single person here today that they would receive that kind of grace, receive that kind of love, receive that kind of comfort and security and peace. And that would ground their hearts to live a life that is worthy of following you. And when we fail, that we would just continually and constantly come back to you. That we wouldn't hide in shame or quit in exhaustion. But we would come back to you for forgiveness and mercy and grace and joy and hope again. I ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.